Welcome to AliCast. I'm Lian Chen from AliZilla. Technology has completely disrupted the way we shop in the 21st century. So, how can retail leaders navigate these massive changes, especially after the experiences of the COVID lockdowns? To answer these questions and more, we turn to one of the most influential scholars and thought leaders in retail. Barbara Khan is the Patty and J. H. Baker Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. Khan has conducted decades of research and held extensive conversations with CEOs of some of the world's largest retailers for her book, The Shopping Revolution, where she offered a framework to examine how innovative companies can stay on top of the fast-changing retail landscape. Recently. She added a new chapter to her book, focusing specifically on the innovations in China, and explore ways that the global retail industry can learn from these innovations. Thank you so much for joining us, Barbara. It's my pleasure to be here. I want to start by talking about your book, The Shopping Revolution. It was first published in 2018. Even though it's only been a few years, so much has evolved ever since. What do you think are some of the biggest changes that the retail industry faced in the last few years? Yeah, it's very interesting. I I started writing my book in 2017, which in the United States was dubbed the year of the retail apocalypse, since so many physical stores were closing. And the purpose of my book, which, as you said, I published in 2018, was to say, no, retail is not dead. Just bad retail is dead. And there are a lot of very successful retailers. Let's look at what their strategies are. And so the book featured retailers who were doing well before COVID. And what's interesting, of course, is if they thought the year of 2017 was the year of the retail apocalypse, they hadn't seen anything until 2020, which, of course, non-essential retailers were closed for three months in the United States and all over the world. COVID. Seriously affected the retail environment, but what I found was that the retailers who were doing well and who were successful prior to COVID flourished during COVID. So it wasn't that COVID rewrote the rules; it was that COVID accelerated trends we already knew were happening, and we knew for a long time that there was going to be a growth in e-commerce retailing. We had seen that trend. Not everybody was shopping online, of course, and not all retailers were directed towards e-commerce. But it was definitely a trend that was starting pre-COVID. Come COVID, and as I mentioned, March, April, May, 2020, people are kind of staying at home. We see an incredible acceleration to digital and to e-commerce. And so, some of those retailers that were already understanding the role of that were in a much, much better place than the retailers who hadn't embraced digital commerce before. Clearly, we've seen so many changes in the last few years, and we really need a framework to understand it all. You're known for the Con Retailing Success Matrix, which is a simple but effective framework to understand why some retailers are more successful than others. Can you walk us through this framework? What was missing from the more traditional analysis? Yeah, you know, I've been a marketing professor for many years, and of course, I have an office full of books on retailing and on marketing. And so you'd say, well, why do we need another one? Well, when I go back and look at all these books about retailing, 
basically what you see are all sorts of suggestions about product and about operations. Typically, people define retailing as being a good merchant. The best retailers were the best merchants. And they understood product. And I'm not saying that isn't important. It's vital for good retailers. But what my book was focusing on is now the new value of the customer, of looking at the world through the customer's eyes. And I think what we've seen as changes in marketing in the last decade is this focus on customer-focused retailing. And so what does that mean? My framework is based on two principles of customer-based marketing. The first principle is very, very simple. If you believe that the customer has choice and they're going to decide what they want to buy and when, then the most important thing is to provide customer value. But what is new, and this became even more important during COVID, I would argue, is that they want to buy this product from someone they trust, which means that in addition to the product, the customer experience, the interaction with the retailer, other values over and above what the product delivers also matters. The other principle that my matrix is based on is the principle of differential advantage. It says if you're in a very competitive industry, then you've got to do something that's better than the competition or else the customers will buy from someone else. So in retailing, how does a competitor compete against other retailers and do something better? And again, I'm going to make it really simple. They either make it more fun, more pleasurable, more trustworthy, or they take away the pain. So these principles of differential advantage form the rows of my matrix. And then I have a two-by-two matrix. And the argument is, if you want to be a winner, you have to be a leader in one of those four boxes. You see leaders like Zara, Nike, um, luxury was really good. In the take away the pain of the product, you see retailers who are winning like Walmart, Costco, Target. In the increase the experience, you see retailers like Sephora or Ulta that provide an amazing customer experience. And when you take away the pain, you see online e-commerce giants in the U.S. like Amazon. Now, what my research showed is that while initially being the best in one of these four quadrants is enough, over time, as the marketplace gets more competitive, I found retailers needed what I called a two-quadrant strategy. And that meant they need to lean in on their leadership value on the first quadrant to find a second quadrant to win on also. And in the other two quadrants, where they weren't exercising leadership's value, they needed to be good enough. They needed to stay up with changing customer experiences. So the overall strategy of the matrix is to find your leadership quadrant, build on that leadership quadrant to find a second quadrant, that's the two-quadrant advantage, and then in the other two quadrants, monitor what customer expectations are and keep up because people are constantly demanding more and more. There are a lot of insightful additions in this updated and expanded version of your book, but the most fascinating part is the new chapter on China. 
Why did you decide to dedicate an entire chapter to the innovations that you saw in China? Well, a lot of people have said this, and I certainly believed it also that China was way ahead of the rest of the world in retail, and that there was a lot of innovation that was going on in China that, and the rest of the world didn't know about it. I was lucky enough, in terms of timing, to go to China in November 2019, which, as we know, <laughs> was right before. COVID exploded in the beginning of 2020, so I was really lucky to spend some time in China. And I spoke to a lot of my contacts that I had there through the Wharton School. We talked to a lot of the different ideas that are innovations in China, and I was really impressed. And so, when I came back and then started revising the book, I had had this experience of thinking through what is it that makes China retail. Just so far ahead of the U.S., and so that's kind of what I tried to discuss in that new chapter in the book. And I talked about some of it comes from there's a different culture in China than say in the U.S. If I compare it specifically to the U.S., the idea of social consumer behavior or sharing things is is more pronounced in China than in the U.S. The e-commerce seemed to be further along. The dependence on the mobile phone seemed to be further along in China, and the presence of these Uber apps like AliPay. That concept of an Uber payment app, where you can use social media, buy directly online through the payment process, etc., etc., all the things that you can do in those apps. That concept of an Uber app doesn't exist anywhere outside of China. The other thing that I was really impressed with was Alibaba's model of new retail, and the idea of really incorporating e-commerce with the physical store. And to my eye, China was way ahead of other retailers anywhere else in that concept of new retailing. I do think what's happened during COVID is a lot of other people have recognized the benefit of that, and we are seeing a lot more movement towards that in the U.S. Amazon is definitely moving in that direction. You're seeing Walmart move in that direction. Target has moved in that direction. The combination of a seamless integration between what you see online with what people will experience when they go through the physical store, and that connection is made through the app. I think Alibaba was way ahead of anybody else on that, and the rest of the world is trying to catch up. That's a great segue into、um, your observation on Alibaba. What are some of the innovations of Alibaba that you think have the most impact on global retail? You know, a lot of people think Alibaba, Amazon, but to me, Alibaba and Amazon are very, very different. They have very different philosophies, and they operate really differently. Alibaba is strictly a marketplace. It doesn't sell first party. Amazon has first party and third party sales, so that makes it in a very different position. Amazon facilitates third party sales. It facilitates their marketplace、um, partners. It provides services for their marketplace partners, but it also competes with the brands and sellers and resellers that sell on that marketplace. Because Amazon also has first-party sales, Alibaba, because it doesn't have first-party, because it is a marketplace, they share all their data. 
they do what they can to make sure their brands and the sellers on their marketplace, particularly in Tmall, they support their brands. The American brands that have gone on the Tmall app or Tmall platform to sell to China, they choose Alibaba to do that because they believe Alibaba will support their brands. Whether or not these brands have the same faith if they go on the Amazon platform is not clear because of that difference in the fact that Amazon also competes with some of these brands, and in Tmall, they don't. Taobao is a completely different thing. I mean, I guess that's closer uh, in our universe to something like an eBay, which is customer to customer, peer to peer. You know, it's not, it's not a B2C model in the same way Tmall is. And the advantage, of course, of Taobao is the large assortment. Anything you could possibly want is available on that. So the assortment is tremendous. And the customer experience, it's a lot of fun. It's like a treasure hunt searching for what you want to search for. So in general, I put Alibaba in my matrix on the top row, offering endless assortment and a fun, pleasurable customer experience. Because Alibaba is so big, they can also offer incredible convenience and low price. But in my mind, where they differentiate is on an incredible product assortment and an incredible treasure hunt fun customer experience. Whereas I put Amazon in my matrix on the bottom row. They facilitate frictionless. They want it to be as easy as possible. Search on Amazon is very different. Amazon is about efficiency, spending as little time as possible on the site, whereas typically customers on Alibaba spend way much more time on the site because it's fun. So I would think of Amazon as a marketplace and retailer, e-commerce, as someone who takes away the pain, and Alibaba as somebody who kind of increases the pleasure. It's very interesting to kind of see from your perspective how Alibaba is plotted and, and what we're doing right on your quadrants. Um, I want to go back a little bit to um, kind of the two markets. Uh, you talked about the consumer differences in China versus U.S. And in your book, you specifically talked about the two areas of retail where China is ahead of the U.S. There's social commerce and physical retail. What's really giving the China market an edge in these two areas? The real use of live streaming. Now, remember, I went in November 2019. I started to see this, but I understand during 2020, this grew by leaps and bounds. Uh, shoppertainment, the idea of shoppertainment, that's another completely new definition of what pleasurable shopping is. And uh, a lot of the Chinese retailers seem to have uh, leaned into this idea. And during 2020, it really took off. And so that you have some of these mega influencers who are live streaming three or four hours a day, every single day. They have legions and legions of dedicated followers who will do anything that these influencers say. And the idea of these influencers is to maintain authenticity so that their followers will trust them. And so you see the influence of KOLs and KOCs and the idea of shopping now as a pastime, as entertainment, not just about acquiring things, but also being entertained, learning, all sorts of things, and along the way, making some purchases. That idea is slowly coming to the U.S., but I don't think it's 
it's definitely not here to the degree it was in China. And it's only very recently that we've seen a move in the U.S. in this direction. That, again, is one of the things that happened during COVID, particularly the youngest consumers, the Gen Z consumers. A lot of the research was showing they were spending a lot of time online, in gaming platforms, in short video platforms. These ideas of these very, very short videos providing content and entertainment, that is coming to the United States. But it's my understanding that that existed in China before it was here and really, really grew exponentially during COVID. So finally, we all know that the pandemic has changed retailing forever as we know it. We have a lot of listeners who are retail leaders from around the world. What are your tips for them to stay competitive in this post-COVID world? Well, I go back to the two principles of marketing, the principle of customer value and the principle of differential advantage, which are the two principles that underlie my matrix. Essentially, you've got to monitor what the customer wants. And we saw rapid acceleration in customer demands during COVID. Any retailer who couldn't pivot to meet those demands was going to be in trouble. And that's just a rule forever. You have to understand what the customer wants. Customers, having spent the last 18 months stuck in their kitchens like I am, are expecting better delivery, better e-commerce performance. They like the idea of when they can go to the store, that there's an integration between what they've already been doing and what they see in the physical store. Those expectations aren't going to go away. And so I think um, what I call my frictionless quadrant, almost every retailer's got to ramp up in that quadrant. You got to be sensitive to what people can afford and what they're willing to spend. So price is always a very important aspect. And then as life is changing, who knows what the new normal is going to be? There's a lot of questions out there. But as that changing customer behavior happens, it's going to make people want to buy different things. We haven't even talked about other trends that are happening like sustainability, climate change, the growth of resale. All of those trends also affect what kind of products people want. And this new trend of really prioritizing customer experience, making things as easy as possible. I want it when I want it. And making things, if I go into a physical environment or I choose to spend more time on a website or on a platform, making it more fun and entertaining. That whole idea of customer value, I don't think that's going to change in the future. I think you're going to have to pay more and more attention. And as the market gets more competitive, you're going to have to meet these customer needs and values better than the competition. Or frankly, you're not going to make it. What are some of the lessons that we can learn from some of the successes and innovations that you observed in the China market? I think one of the things that's going to shake out eventually here is this whole idea of this payment process. We're already moving to that idea so that you're seeing more Apple Pay here, um, less use of cash, more frictionless payment, paying on your phone. Right now, the U.S. still has all these different apps. You know, it's not all connected you don't really have a marketplace linked with payment as easily as you do in China. So I think that move to those Uber apps, I think you're going to eventually see a closer move to that in other parts of the world. 
I do think this changing world of live streaming, key opinion leaders, KOLs, KOCs, I think that we're already seeing movement on that in the US, so I think we're going to see a lot more there. The idea of gamification and how that can be used linked with shopping. The other thing I think that the US can learn from China is they're ahead of us on the seamless integration between online, offline, and mobile commerce. And so the idea of omni-channel is just starting to grow here, but I think it has been in China for a while. And that's another thing I think China's been ahead of us on. Barbara, I really enjoyed reading your book. I think we've kind of lived and breathed the industry, but just reading your matrix, I have to say in the beginning, it's very theoretical. But once I read through the examples and kind of how you put it so concisely, I feel like it really gives me that framework of understanding why some companies are really more successful than others. I appreciate you saying that. I have found it to be incredibly useful myself. It's like deceptively simple. But if you look at that matrix, which is based on the two basic principles of marketing, once you have that matrix in your head, it's so easy to organize everything else that you see. Yeah, I learned a lot, both from reading and recording this podcast today. Thank you, Barbara, for sharing all your insights. And thank you for joining us. It's been my pleasure. It's fun talking with you.